Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we're taking you for a deep dive into some early American history. And if you thought you knew about the Salem witch hunts and Salem witch trials, guess again. There's been a lot of history uncovered, and there's a story here that we can all hope will never be repeated. I'm taking you now to present-day Danvers, Massachusetts, located on the Danvers River in northeast Massachusetts. Danvers is a short ride from Boston and close to the popular beaches of Gloucester and Revere. It's a peaceful little town of 27,000, but it has a quirky reputation. One, it's named after Danvers Osborne, who was briefly the governor of New York province, but committed suicide shortly after taking office. Two, it houses the original site of the Danvers State Mental Hospital, which was the inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft's horror stories and Batman's Arkham Asylum. The hospital was torn down and is now a condominium complex. Three, also here in Danvers, you'll find the Rebecca Nurse Homestead and Graveyard. Rebecca was one of the victims of the hysteria that swept Danvers back in 1692, and there is a memorial in Danvers that remembers the victims of the Salem witch trial. And four, Danvers used to go by the name of Salem. But when the memories of the witch hysteria became too much for the citizens to bear, they changed the name from Salem to Danvers. When the pilgrims arrived on the shores of Massachusetts in 1620, they brought their faith with them, and they were hoping that in this new world they could build a strong society based upon religious principles. It was supposed to be a new beginning, and it was, for many. It was definitely a costly adventure in terms of human lives, and the surviving pilgrims had formed a strong bond through hardship and perseverance. But 72 years and a generation or two later, with the addition of newcomers, something, and to this day researchers are not quite sure what, touched off a terrible panic that unwrapped old European fears, superstitions, and resentments in many, and began a witch hunt the likes of which few countries have ever experienced. More than 20 innocent people were killed, most by hanging, others left to starve in jail, and one slowly crushed to death by rocks while people looked on. The lives of many others were ruined. It was a bad time in American history. One thing the Salem witch hunt gave us was the term witch hunt, which basically describes the political targeting of an opposition figure for the purpose of destroying their livelihood and reputation. The Salem witch trials may well have been started by a group of young girls who felt repressed by their families and society and wanted to exact revenge upon that same society. There were too many rules in a small colonial village. Life to a teenager was all work and no play. Strict religious rules demanded a regimented lifestyle. A group of them rebelled. If they stirred up a hornet's nest, they could sit back and watch the bodies pile up. Literally. They had no social media to work with, but in a small village in 1692, you didn't need one. Lies spread fast and their methods were foolproof, relying upon ancient fears and superstitions and accusing people they didn't like of witchcraft. Some of these people were displaying strange behavior, and that made it easier for the girls to target them as witches. This is the story of the victims of the first American witch hunt, and if ever history can teach us a lesson, this should be a prime example. Don't believe everything you hear or read. Look for both sides of the story, not one. Judge not in the court of popular opinion, and think for yourself using facts that you know to be facts and reason. 
Have any of you ever heard of Goody Glover? She was old and frail. She was hanged in Boston on November 16, 1688, after charges of witchcraft were laid against her by the government of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and she was found guilty. Her crime? She spoke in Gaelic mixed with English, and often spoke prayers in Gaelic up toward the heaven and the saints. They said she was summoning the devil. She made little dolls for her daughter Mary and kept them in her house. They said those were evil. She was Irish Catholic and often treated as an outsider. She had arrived in Boston as an indentured servant, having been set up from the Barbados along with her daughter Mary. The Protestant Puritans had centuries-old grudges against Roman Catholics, and for good reason, they would have told you, as Catholics had been persecuting Protestants all over Europe for centuries. In fact, hanging or burning witches was a Catholic invention. It was a papal bull issued by Pope Innocent VIII that made the condemnation of witchcraft illegal in 1484. That bull, or order, inspired the church's inquisitors to write The Hammer of Witches, a book that spurred witch hunts all over Europe for 200 years. No evidence was needed to kill a witch. Joan of Arc was accused of being a witch and killed for wearing men's clothes, which was all she could find in the prison in which they put her. So there was Goody, being led up the hill in Boston to the waiting gallows. She muttered constantly as they led her up the hill while the onlookers whispered to each other, "'It's the devil's language. She's speaking the devil's language. And she's mad. She's crazy. Just listen to her.' And she was no doubt praying to her saints for salvation and adding a few epithets in Gaelic at some of the people who were throwing globs of mud at her. In the crowd was a Boston merchant whose name was Robert Califf, who watched with sorrow and horror as they placed a rope around the old woman's neck. He actually knew Goody, and knew her to be a kind, frail old woman, always kind to strangers. The crowd got even more excited when Goody's cat, having followed her up the hill, was picked up by the scruff of the neck and started meowing loudly, and the crowd worked itself up to a fever pitch asking that someone wring the cat's neck. Crowds are like that when someone's about to be hung. Goody stood on the platform and spoke loudly to the crowd in Gaelic. She was nervous and frightened, and she turned to speak it in half Gaelic and half English at times like that. She said, My death will not save those children from their malady. Then the trap door dropped, and Goody's neck was soon broken. She was most likely talking about the children of the man who had hired Goody's daughter Mary as a housekeeper. His name was John Goodwin. His wife's name was Martha, and she accused Mary of stealing some clothes from their eldest daughter when they were doing the laundry. A fight ensued between Goody and the Goodwin children, who soon after fell horribly ill. They were seized by spasms that racked their bodies, leaving them yelling about horrible things that they were apparently seeing and hearing. Their physician was brought in, and he couldn't find any cause for their strange behavior. The only explanation was that Goody had put a curse on them. Then the authorities started looking into Goody's life and behavior. She was heard muttering in a strange language. There were crudely made dolls in her home. Maybe she had used those dolls to curse the Goodwin children. So Goody was tried and sent to the gallows. Her prediction that her death would not stop the Goodwin children from being sick was correct. They still had fits throughout the following year. Goody's death marked the end of hanging witches in Boston and the beginning of witch hysteria spreading to other colonies in Massachusetts. And Salem was right in the path. Ironically, the name Salem is a derivative of the Hebrew word shalom meaning peace, and it was a peaceful town until the late 1680s when King William's War broke out. 
It was called King William's War in 1688 because of governmental changes that occurred in the colony due to the change of English kings from Catholic to Protestant, and this caused a split between the formerly friendly Wabanaki tribe and the colonists, as the Indians sided now with the French. And by the time the Indian War subsided, Salem Town and Salem Village found themselves split, with Salem Village refusing to accept Salem Town's minister, and so forth and so on. Then came a minister named Samuel Paris, who brought his wife Elizabeth, their three children, and his little niece Abigail, along with two slaves from his failed sugar plantation in Barbados, and he took over the pulpit in Salem Village. From there on, things got a little crazy, a lot crazy. The congregation in Salem Village had a tendency toward hard-headedness, and they seemed to thrive on turmoil. Within a short time, Minister Paris was knee-deep in conflict with his parishioners. He had been promised a salary and the ownership of a parsonage and the land surrounding it. The villagers decided to parse that and say that was only his while he was minister. He said no, this was given to him permanently. This and other arguments got his back up, and he started to crack down on anyone who wasn't following the guidelines of the church. He made it mandatory for full members of the church to be baptized and confess their faith publicly. Some liked this. Others didn't want to wear their faith on their sleeves. Minister Parrish took to bullying the non-compliant members. He started using sermons to single them out. His supply of firewood which they were providing him soon dwindled down to nothing, and nights were getting cold. And then his salary began to dwindle. And then it went to nothing. To say he had some serious problems is putting it mildly. One day, Paris's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth, nicknamed Betty, and twelve-year-old Abigail Williams, nicknamed Nabby, were sitting around the kitchen table at the minister's home talking about who they thought their future husbands would be. The only others in the parsonage were the two slaves, Tatuba, and her husband, John Indian. Nabby suggested they do some fortune-telling, definitely not on the approved list at the parson's home, which made it all the more tempting. She suggested using the Venus glass. They filled a glass of water and set it on the table. Nabby then grabbed an egg and separated it carefully, allowing the white to fall into the water as the yolk stayed in the shell. Once the white was in the water, both of the girls stared at it expectantly. They commented to each other as it began to take different shapes until it formed the definite shape of a coffin. They had both seen coffins being lowered into the ground. Nabby was likely present when her parents were buried, which is how she became part of Pastor Paris's family. The girls, upon seeing the coffin, screamed. Tatuba, the female slave, came running into the kitchen, but the girls had already run up the stairs. Tatuba quickly drained the glass and threw away the eggshell. She was the one who had told Nabby how it was done on the islands. And Nabby and Betty had shared island witchcraft with other girls their age as well. The strange symptoms began in January of 1692, soon after the fortune-telling incident. Nabby showed her symptoms during one of Diodat Lawson's visits. He was the former parson who had stopped by to visit with Samuel and his wife. Nabby suddenly began to convulse. Muscle spasms made her scream and lurch, and it was a terrible thing to watch because no one could do anything to help. Nabby's arms were thrown up in the air as if she could fly, and her muscles jerked and wrenched as if she were being controlled by an invisible puppet master. Between nonsensical and real words, she managed to communicate that she was being pinched by an unseen spirit. Reverend Parrish tried to approach her, begging her to stop, and she spun around to face him, her eyes suddenly wild. She tried to talk, but she could only bark. 
like a dog's bark. Paris explained to the visiting Lawson that the girls had both been sick and felt feverish, and that he had treated them with home remedies. But soon they both started acting strangely, hiding under the furniture and barking. Then came the screams of pain, and then the fits. It had to be a possession, he thought. They called for a doctor, and he diagnosed them both as being controlled by an evil hand. They, he said, were victims of witchcraft. The Reverend Mr. Parris was desperate to keep his diagnosis quiet. His family reputation and his job were at stake. But this was a small community, and word spread like wildfire. That was mainly due to the efforts of their busybody neighbor, Mary Sibley. But it would have gotten out sooner or later without her help. But then she made the decision to try and cure the girls using some black magic borrowed from the Paris's servant, John Indian. He used to take some rye flour, obtain some urine from the two afflicted girls, and then have his wife, Tatuba, bake the mixture into a hard biscuit. Then it was to be fed to the dog. The dog would then point to the witch who had caused all this. It does make you wonder how this generation of pilgrims survived at all. As it turned out, the dog didn't point to anybody. Whether he was too sick or just didn't care isn't written down in history. But the witch hunt was coming anyway. Seventeen-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard, an orphan and outcast, was quickly passing through a marriageable age as she worked cleaning floors for her great-aunt, Rachel Griggs, and her great-uncle, William, who was a doctor. For her constant housework, she was given room and board, and life was as dreary as it gets for a young girl. She knew all about the seizures her friends were having, and she was hearing it from her great-uncle as well as he discussed his doctor opinions with her great-aunt, his wife. She also heard that a third girl, Anne Putnam Jr., had developed the seizures too. The seizures were getting more complex now. The girls were continuing to say that they were being painfully pinched by spirits, and now they were pointing out the people in the village who were doing it and calling them witches. And now Elizabeth Hubbard joined the fray and became the fourth teenage girl to begin having convulsions and pointing fingers. Lots of historians have looked into these teenage seizures and have been asking questions, and of course the easiest thing to believe is that they were faking all this for a number of reasons, and those reasons seemed to fit. It may be all three of the following, and it may be none. But here we go. One, they were looking for attention and having a fine time fooling the adults who couldn't find a cure. Two, they were getting a thrill from all the power they were beginning to have when they accused innocent people, all poor outcasts, of being witches, and the leaders of the community were listening and acting upon their advice. Three, they were acting out their aggression for being raised in a tightly controlled puritanical society. My guess probably a mixture of all three, but by the time we reach the end, you might have other opinions. It is possible to poke holes in these theories, like, why didn't they stop or confess when people started getting hung? Were they willing to see people die as a result of their actions and still stay silent? The deeper I get into this story, the more I'm saying, yep, they would. Within a few days, the Salem villagers were all convinced that there was a witch in their midst, Every outsider was now a suspect. Reverend Lawson, the man who had been visiting Nabby and Betty when they put on a display for him to witness, was guest speaker at the church during this first week in March of 1692. And it was during his sermon that the four afflicted girls suddenly went into loud fits. Elizabeth Hubbard, the most recent to join the madness, at 17 was the oldest, and therefore the one to be taken seriously. She aided right up and became the main instigator of all future paranoia, taking a main seat as a witness at the trials when they came around. 
but she wasn't the first to point out a witch. Betty Paris beat her to the punch, probably because her father, Reverend Paris, believed her all the way and was pressing her to tell who the witch was who was causing her all this pain. She was only nine years old. She had confessed to her father about using the Venus glass. He was angry, and he wanted a name. He wanted somebody to blame. So she gave up Tatuba. Whatever Tatuba had shared from her experience on Barbados made a big impression on Betty. Then Elizabeth Hubbard backed up Betty Paris as well, and soon the village was screaming for Tatuba's scalp. As the frenzy mounted, all four teenage girls convened and gave up two more names, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. They were both outsiders, too. Sarah Good was broke and destitute and was known for traveling from house to house begging for food and shelter. When the little girls of the village had approached her in the past, she had treated them harshly, which placed her on their no-fly list. Sarah Osborne had lost her first husband, who was from a prominent family, and later married William Osborne, who was a former indentured servant. She gave her inherited land to him, thus earning the spite of her former husband's family, the Putnams. And wouldn't you know, Anne Putnam was one of the four little girls. There was obviously no evidence against Tatuba, Sarah Good, or Sarah Osborne. But who needs evidence when witches are about? I can't help but picture the scene in Frankenstein where the townspeople, with lighted torches, are searching for the monster intent upon destroying him. Lucky for the Salem villagers, their monsters couldn't run far. We'll return with Tatuba's confession right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Magistrate John Haythorne was an ex-military captain, having served during King Philip's War, as well as a ruthless businessman, an avid prosecutor of Quakers, whom he just didn't like. And he was also a severe judge who could dish out death sentences without blinking. All it took was one look at twenty-something Tatuba as she stood shaking in front of him, she being a slave, and black, and speaking in broken English, didn't have a chance. She'd been accused of witchcraft by four little white girls who had suffered terribly under one of her spells. He began questioning her, and after having her pronounce her name and occupation and place of residence, he asked her, Tatuba, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? She answered, None. Why do you hurt these children? He commanded. She whispered out, I do not hurt them. Then who does? He asked her. It had been rumored that Reverend Paris had already beaten her trying to get a confession out of her. She was scared. For all I know, it was the devil, she answered. Haythorn looked down at her from the bench. Did you ever see the devil? He asked. She looked back up after a minute of thinking. She was desperate to get herself off the hook. The devil came to me, she answered, and bid me serve him. Haythorn sat back in his chair. He had her now. This was a confession. She was a witch. But he didn't want just her. He wanted all the witches. He started questioning and giving her openings. She started to spin a huge lie. She told the judge that there were five other witches in Salem Village and that two of them were Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. By now she was crying, pleading innocence. They all five got on me and told me that if I would not hurt the children, that they would hurt me. Haythorn asked her if she was sorry that she hurt the children. She said she was, but she knew that if she didn't, the other witches would do something terrible to her. This would all have been great courtroom drama if it were not for the fact that all this was going to get people killed. 
but the tuba was just getting warmed up. She said that a man had come to her in an appearance and told her to serve him. He said, kill the children. She was asked to describe him. Sometimes he was like a hog, she said, and other times he looked like a great dog. And sometimes he was in the form of a rat. In fact, two rats, one red and one black. She then confessed to pinching Elizabeth Hubbard and to stabbing Anne Putnam with a kind of an invisible knife. She told Haythorne that the two other witches were women who transformed into horrible creatures, sometimes changing into a man dressed in black with white hair and a woman in a white hood with a topknot, and they rode on sticks and set spectral wolves upon their victims. By now, Haythorne had everything out of Tatuba that he wanted, except testimony that would indict good Osborne. Do you see who it is who torments these children now? he asked. Yes, answered Tatuba. It is good. She hurts them in her own shape. This came out in a little faltering voice. The judge tried to get more out of her, but she was done. She ended her testimony by saying, I am blind now. I cannot see. This was the first week of March, 1692. Soon, child after child was falling dramatically ill with the same symptoms and paranoia ruled Salem Village. Judge Haythorne started looking in earnest for the remaining witches. Thirteen-year-old Anne Putnam was next to point a finger, and on March 12th she went on record saying that she'd seen the specter of Martha Corey, or rather it was her father Thomas Putnam who actually filled out the complaint, which he did for all the girls. The Putnam family had placed themselves right in the middle of all this. They had been among the founders. They were troublemakers, involved in lawsuits over neighbors' land, always stirring things up. Martha Corey, although a member of the church, was still an outsider. She had given birth to a black son while married to her white husband, her first husband, and if ever there was a candidate for the Scarlet A in Salem Village, she was it. Anyway, the Putnams didn't like her, and 13-year-old Anne figured she'd bet on a good horse to go down as a winner of the rope. Whether her mom and dad had been behind it is not known, but who knows what evil lurks in the hearts and minds of some people. Then they brought in 70-year-old grandmother Rebecca Nurse to let Nabby Williams testify against her. What Nabby had against Rebecca Nurse, no one knows. Maybe she had yelled at her for tromping to her flower bed. But as soon as old Rebecca walked into the courtroom, Ann Putnam had a seizure. Two other afflicted teen girls were in the courtroom as well when Rebecca Nurse hobbled in, and they started shrieking when Rebecca tried to answer the judge's questions. Their limbs shook. They convulsed all around the room. Ann Putnam's mother, visibly upset because her daughter was being made to suffer by those witches, screamed out, "'Did you not bring the black man with you?' By now, Ann Putnam Jr. was writhing on the floor in supposed agony. You could only wish that she would pick up a big splinter with all this, but the hysteria was still only getting started. Sarah Good, one of the six accused, had one thing going for her in life, and that was her four-year-old daughter Dorothy. On March 24th, Haythorne issued an order for Dorothy's arrest as a witch. The little girl was brought before the judges to be interrogated just as her mother was. This went on for two whole weeks. The latest teens suffering seizures now were Mercy Lewis and Mary Wolcott, and they joined Ann Putnam in testifying that the little girl had been biting them like some rabid animal and showing the bite marks on their bodies to prove it. They testified that four-year-old Dorothy had tried to choke them, pinch them, beat them, and had continually tried to force them to sign the devil's book. It's hard to imagine what that little four-year-old girl was going through, having her mother dragged away. 
When they came for her, she was terrified. At the end of two weeks of intense interrogation, little Dorothy got tired of saying she had done nothing wrong and finally confessed, hoping she could be killed with her mother. Keep in mind that all this is going on in a community of many people and that rather than rising up and putting a stop to all of it, they just went along with it. People don't realize the power they have when they unite with truth behind them. But evil has its ways of silencing most people. There was one of the villagers who saw through all this, and he did speak up. His name was John Proctor. He saw the accused girl's testimonies as completely fake, just an act, and he declared to his family that the girl should be whipped for lying and wasting people's time, seeing the trials as applied by the Putnam family to seize more power and land in the village. That's when 18-year-old Mary Warren, who had been orphaned and taken in by John Proctor and his wife Elizabeth, and had become basically a household slave to them, starting having fits as well. Proctor punished her and told her to knock it off, giving her extra work, and saying that if she did it again, she'd get a good whipping. Mary's fits put Giles Corey, the husband of Martha Corey, in the crosshairs, until Proctor loaded her with so many household chores that she couldn't find time for another public fit. That's when she posted a note on the church door thanking the congregation for praying for her. That set the bleeding hearts in the congregation to try to find out how she was suffering. And that's when Mary hinted to them that there had never been any affliction and that the other girls were faking theirs. The kind villagers reeled in shock. How could that be? Word of Mary's new attitude got around the community and just when the light of reason tried to shine on Salem Village, the afflicted girls accused her of being a witch. There was blood in the water and hell to pay. Join us next week for the conclusion of the Salem Witch Hunts at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Meanwhile, we've had some new reviews and I'd like to share some with you. The first one, five stars. Amazing. Like my grandfather telling me stories. No offense, Matt, by the title, but that's how this show feels like. I look forward to all your shows. Thanks, John. That one from HBC 76, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, branching out, five stars. I've listened to all the HLMH episodes and very much look forward to the new episodes. While waiting for the next episode, I tried some of the classic stories and got hooked on those too. Quality storytelling works across a myriad of topics, and John proves that with all of his podcasts. Great job. Keep them coming. Down from Pistol Pete 92, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, 1001 Mysteries and Legends, five stars. After looking for some mystery historical podcasts, I came across this series of podcasts and have listened to about six of them so far. They're well-written and educational as well. Looking forward to listening to them when the kids go to bed. Down from Mac 22256 Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, five stars, great single-serving history. This podcast helped me get through a 1,500-mile road trip. I can't wait for more. Down from Grant, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Love listening to this show. We listen to it every night when we go to bed. Interesting topics and easy to listen to. Down from I'm a Morning Girl, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars. Greatest podcast. I love this podcast. Very informative and easy to follow. I love that there are a variety of topics. Down from David Gaz, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, fantastic, plowing through all these episodes, five stars. What took me so long to find this? Great and varied topics with awesome delivery. 
The thing I like most is that you can tell that John has a real interest in the stories and is thrilled to be sharing them with us. I love it and have been telling all my friends. Thank you, Robert Hammond, U.S. And this one, a good man, five stars. Keep up the good work. That one from No Trace, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to sit down and write us these reviews. We appreciate it very much, and it helps new listeners find us. Also, if you'd like to be a supporter of our show, please join us at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's where our Patreons really do help us out by pledging just a little bit every month, about the same as it costs of blended coffee. And in return, I send best of episodes and early bird episodes before our shows actually appear at our podcast hosts. We really appreciate our Patreon supporters, our reviewers, and all of you listeners out there. Please do take a moment to share our show with others. That's how we grow the fastest. Sometimes people have never listened to podcasts, and you can help them subscribe to our shows on their Apple or Android phones. We appreciate that, too. Thank you so much, and we'll be back with the rest of the story next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.